Welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from bearmarriage.com. Yes, no longer to love, honor, and vacuum.com. Yes, and I am joined by my daughter, Rebecca Lindenbach. Hi. Co-author of The Great Sex Rescue and of our upcoming book, She Deserves Better, mm-hmm. and co-host of the podcast, and most of all, mother of my wonderful grandchildren. Most of all, yes. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and we have a bit of a different podcast today. Yes, we do. Because I know that normally we talk about healthy evidence-based biblical advice for your marriage and sex life. Um, But today I actually want to talk about plagiarism from the pulpit. Yeah, and I mean, it seems a little bit different, but I think this actually fits in our Mm -hmm. overall kind of groove of just, you know, calling the church to do better. To do better, better, to do better. And so I want to tell you a little bit of a story of how this happened and how I learned about this. So a couple of weeks ago, I was involved in um, some conversations on Twitter about Josh Howerton. So Josh Howerton is a senior pastor at Lake Point Church, Mm -hmm. which is in Rockwall, Texas. It's got six different campuses. I think there's like tens and tens of thousands of people who who go every weekend. So it's a very large megachurch, Southern Baptist megachurch. And I was concerned because uh, there is this is a convoluted story that isn't really part of this podcast. I just want to let you know how this all started. Mm-hmm. Andy Wood is the incoming pastor at Saddleback. He's replacing Rick Warren. And there have been some um, pretty serious allegations of spiritual abuse against yeah. Andy Wood. Uh, and as well, he platformed Mark Driscoll. Yes. <laughs> and actually invited him to a leadership conference, said that he just... It, he just loved Mark's style. And when Mark was talking about how you need to get rid of accountability, so you shouldn't have an elders board, you should just have other pastors, you know, making you accountable. Which is, I will say, very sketchy from someone who's been, you know, alleged to have um, engaged in spiritual abuse. Right. And so we're talking about a situation where in mega churches, you know, Mars Hill has fallen because of spiritual abuse. Uh, Harvest Bible has yeah. fallen because of spiritual abuse. I don't want to see that happen to Saddleback. And I think there's some very legitimate uh, questions regarding Andy Wood. But Josh Howerton was defending him and prayed over him. And so I was engaging in this Twitter conversation. I was quoted in a couple of articles about it. And a woman emailed me about Josh and just said that she had gone to his church for quite a while and then eventually left because she just felt that it was it was not the place for her. Um I won't go into the reasons, but she sent me a sermon clip. She said, please listen to this sermon, this 30 seconds of the sermon. And I took a look at it. And in that, Josh Howerton was basically saying, if you resist what he's saying, you're not resisting the pastor, you're resisting God, mm-hmm. you know, because he is, he is quoting from scripture. And so he was elevating his interpretation of scripture to God, to God. Yeah. Right. So that's all interesting. But what, what, here's why this whole thing got started on the page where that sermon was, was a link to another sermon he had done in March called Marriage is Hard. Mm -hmm. And this month on the blog in September, we have a marriage misdiagnosis month where we're looking at how often the evangelical conversation about marriage misdiagnoses the actual problem. And one of the things we're talking about is this idea that marriage is hard. And so I was just getting ready one morning and I often listen to stuff online when I do that. And I thought, well, I'll just listen to this sermon to see if there's something that I can use here you know, for yeah. an illustration. And so I'm listening to the sermon and about 15 minutes in, I'm like, wait a minute. I've heard wait this a minute. before. I have heard this before. And he is talking to singles about how important it is not to find the right person, but to become the right person. Yeah. And that is the thesis of Andy Stanley's book, The New Rules of Love, Sex and Dating. Yeah. 
I read that book when it first came out. The publisher sent it to me. I think it was like 2015, 2016. And I loved it. Yeah. And you've talked about it on the blog a bunch. Yeah. I actually have a blog post from 2016. And I'm actually going to let Andy Stanley explain what his book is about. Okay. Yeah. The main thesis of his book. So I have, I have like a minute long, a bit more of a minute long clip where Andy says it better than me in a sermon that he gave. And on and on and on and on about this guy I had met at this party and he was incredible and his job and he was good looking. And she said, and she said, I was telling her that he was a Christian and that he was like, mom, mom, I mean, he's like your kind of Christian mom. Like he's the real deal Christian. Like he doesn't just talk it, but he was talking about Jesus at this party and I could tell his faith is real. And she was going on and on about this guy. He was just incredible. And she said her mom stopped ironing and set the iron on the ironing board and looked at her. And she said, honey, the problem is, a guy like that is not looking for a girl like you. And she said, I literally fell to the floor and began to weep. This was years ago. And that was the defining turning moment in her life when she realized that's right. My whole approach to relationships has been, I'm going to find someone. It never crossed my mind. I needed to become someone. The, my whole approach, every message I've gotten from culture is if I can find the right person, everything will become, everything will be all right. It never dawned on me that I need to become the kind of person that the person I'm dreaming of, hoping for, is actually looking for. Which brings us to this question for all of us, married, single, students, graduates, whatever season of life you're in. Are you the person? Are you the person the person you're looking for is looking for? Okay, so that is the thesis. And you need to understand that that last question. Yeah, are you the kind of person the person you're looking for is looking for? That is his phrase. Yeah. It appears 23 times in his book. It it's is on, on the, the back cover, It's isn't on it? the back cover of his book. It's in every chapter of his book, pretty much. It's always italicized, like, this, this is his big thing. And I've seen all over the internet people being like, you know, like Andy Stanley says, you yeah, know. Yeah, become the, the kind of person, person the, the kind, kind of person, person you're looking, looking for is looking, looking for. for. So I'm getting ready. And I hear Josh saying all of this, and he never mentions Andy Stanley. <laughs> and so we're going to just listen in to Josh's part of the sermon. Um, can y'all describe for me the woman that you want to marry? And they would start like describing something. And guys, it was like a creature out of Greek mythology. I mean, it was like, they would start talking about like, man, you know, I want somebody accepting and compassionate with like the beauty of Selena Gomez and the godliness of Mother Teresa and the sense of humor of Zoe Deschanel. And they, you know, they keep going on all this stuff. And they would finish their list. And I'd just like look out of the room and I would say, bro, the girl you just described would never marry you. For real. And here's my point. I'd be going, hey, man, you have no job. You're addicted to porn and you play Xbox for six hours a day. That girl is never, the girl you just described on that board is never going to marry you. Now, now listen, here, here's, here's what I'm driving at. The Bible says nothing. Like, think about this. Nothing about how to find a good spouse. Nothing. It says tons about becoming the right type of person and spouse. The assumption of the Bible is if you become the right type of person, you will attract the right type of person. So here, let me just say it really quick. You need to shift your focus from finding to becoming if you're single and wanting to find, to, to find and attract a good spouse. So let me just say it like this, and this is a mouthful. Become the person the person you're looking for is looking for. 
But I know that's tough. Just it takes a second. Become the person the person you're looking for is looking for. You guys remember? Let me let me land a plane on this spot like this. Uh, awfully similar, don't you think? Quite similar. Quite similar. Mm. He even has the same thing on the on, on the, the screen. screen that Andy did before. So so very similar. And he never mentioned Andy Stanley. So then I thought. What if there's more of this that's plagiarized? I mean, how, like, what, what is the chance that I would actually have read the book that he plagiarized from? But it's yeah. just, it's just that that's one I happen to know. So I thought, what if he's done this in the rest of his sermon? So I listened to the beginning. I, I just went back about, uh, to where he, this whole section started, where he's talking about finding a spouse. And I realized, so this is about four minutes before what I played for you. I realized that he frames this as the myth of the one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, what you need to know is that Andy Stanley calls it the right person myth. That is the yeah. first chapter in his book, the right person myth. And in the sermon that I've t- just played for you, that clip, he talks about the right person myth as well. But as I listened, I couldn't hear a lot of Andy Stanley, a lot of similar thoughts, but not exactly Andy Stanley. Yeah. But I wondered, huh, I wonder if there's someone else. Mm-hmm. And so let me play for you something that Josh Howerton also said. The Bible does, it says the two shall become one. It does not say the halves shall become whole. And when two halves enter a marriage, they don't make a whole, they make hell. So you hear that laughter Mm -hmm. there. People are responding to that. So he set this whole thing up as saying, you know, people are trying to find the person that is going to complete me. And he talks about, he talks about Jerry Maguire and Renee Zellweger saying, you complete me, you know, the whole, the whole thing. Right. And so I wondered, has someone else said this? Like, are these truly his words? And I Googled it Mm -hmm. and it led me to this sermon by Stephen Furtick where, and I need to say Stephen Furtick also sets up what you're about to hear with the story of Jerry Maguire and, <laughs> and Renee Zellweger. And then Stephen Furtick says this. Go be and his wife and it says that the two will become one. Let me tell you what it doesn't say. It doesn't say the halves will become whole. But yet we teach it and we treat it and we expect it like the halves are going to become whole. But I found out if you go into a marriage half, the two halves are going to make hell. Not whole. Oh my gosh. So he literally took the dude's joke. Yeah. Like that is almost word for word the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then I wondered, well, did he do it with anything else? Yeah. Here again is Josh Howerton. And here's what will always happen to you. Whoever you idolize, you will eventually demonize. That mm-hmm. will happen to you. So if you... Okay. Okay. If you idolize, you will demonize. Right. Here, are you ready, is Mark Driscoll. Oh, dear. Oftentimes, relationships trigger what I'll call the law of idolize, mm-hmm. demonize. Mm-hmm. Uh, America's greatest theologian was Jonathan Edwards, and he once said, you know, I'm summarizing, but if they idolize you, they're going to demonize you. Now, I need to say, too, about Mark Driscoll, that this is something which he has said repeatedly for years. It's kind of his thing. There's multiple graphics. Well, I mean, he's also quoting Jonathan Edwards. Yeah, he is. But he's really made this his thing. He has a book where this is like his seventh law, the law of idolizing and demonizing. There's there's multiple graphics. You could go back a decade where you have Mark Driscoll saying, whatever you idolize, you will eventually demonize, etc. So in those exact words. And so he, again, is taking... Mark Driscoll. Well, um, he's taking Mark Driscoll, quoting Jonathan Edwards. So he's taking from both of them. And, and I do want to say that yeah. um, Bear Marriage, we really, like, just, just to be very clear, 
as I do feel a need to clarify this, we don't endorse Jonathan Edwards as a theologian. No, just because he it, was he, a slaveholder. He was a slaveholder, so, and, and, and Mark Driscoll was spiritually abusive. So yeah, we so don't... we're not saying that they're good guys. We're just saying that you still shouldn't steal even from bad guys. Yes, exactly. I don't have a video for this one. There was another pithy saying that he did use in, in this very few moments. He said, marriage does not create new problems in your life. It reveals the issues that were already there. Mm-hmm. That is something which Rick Warren has said repeatedly, and there are multiple graphics. So when you go back, and again, I only look, this is just eight minutes of his sermon. And he found like four different people that he And he did, he, he, he took Andy Stanley, Mark Driscoll, Rick Stephen Warren, Furtick. and Stephen Furtick. And he, he took... He, he took their outlines, he took their words, and basically every pithy thing that he said was from somebody else. And I, I find that problematic. Now, he's not the only one to plagiarize. No. There's been a lot of talk about this on Twitter lately. Uh, there was a long Twitter thread about a sermon that Tim Keller plagiarized. It looks like he plagiarized from a book several decades ago. Then there's uh, Warren Throckmorton has written a lot about how Mark Driscoll plagiarized Tim Keller. Yeah. <laughs> um, Aaron New has done, he's a counselor, he's done some great work on how Tim Clinton has a lot of issues with plagiarism. Um, it's been in the news about how Christine Kane plagiarized. So it's, it's, it's in books in the event world, but it's also in sermons. And there, there's a lot of problems with pastors stealing entire sermons. Mm -hmm. And so I thought we could just talk about this on a broader level of does this matter? Does this matter that a pastor is taking other people's work and making it sound like they're like they're his own? Yeah. And and obviously, this is a little bit outside of our wheelhouse. And so we thought that we would talk to someone where it's very much in their wheelhouse. Yeah. So I have invited Scott McKnight on the podcast, and we will go to our interview with him now. Well, I am so happy to welcome back to the podcast, Scott McKnight. He is an author. He writes amazing stuff. He's really active on social media, but he's also professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary and the author of an amazing book, along with his daughter, A Church Called Tove, as well as many other books. But thank you, Scott, for being here. Well, Sheila, good to be with you again. And uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, so I sent you all of the the details about what our listeners have just have just seen and heard. Um, and I would just love your take on it. What do you think is happening here? Well, it's always, it's always difficult not to, I mean, to, to examine something like this without seeing the, let's say the pastor's pattern of behavior, the preacher's pattern, the other authors, the blogger, you know, I see this in different contexts uh, because uh I'm a professor, and we have very strict guidelines for plagiarism. I mean, mm-hmm. very strict. Uh, and I'm also a gospel student, synoptic gospels, uh, so listen to this one, is that we study how much Matthew and Luke took from Mark and a, a purported source called Q. Mm-hmm. And the, the rule in our world is if there are five identical words in a row, it's copying. Uh-huh. Right? Now, they didn't have uh, plagiarism rules in that day, um, although they did have ways of condemning people who did not uh, use their sources properly. Um, so I pay attention to this conversation. But um, I was stunned, let's say, 25 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, mm-hmm. when uh, I was attending a church 
and the pastor of the church was accused of plagiarism. And I, I did not know this. I mean, this was our church. And I was, get, I was told uh, to read where he was getting his sermons. And he actually was using sermon sources, pre-existing sermons that he would write out by hand in his own little kind of way, paper, these little mm -hmm. pieces of paper that he took into the pulpit. And he was using first-person illustrations from other <laughs> people as his own. And mm -hmm. I remember saying to his wife, that was must have been an interesting experience. And her, her look to me was the oddest sort of look. And I thought, well, that was, a lot. that was a different response. Well, then I'm told that he was doing this. And he says, to, and so I was the one asked to meet with him. So we met at a local restaurant. And uh, he told me, he says, I was never taught that this was wrong. And I said, yes, you were, because you went to our seminary. Mm -hmm. And that is taught, is taught you're not to do. If you are going to use someone else's sermon, then you tell your congregation. Because yeah. the congregation is paying you to preach sermons, not paying you to preach someone else's sermons. And so the assumption of the people in a church is that the sermon is yours unless you tell us. Yeah. And my experience with people who do this, I've talked about this, Sheila, on my blog numerous times. And I almost always, and I quit doing it in some ways, because I was always getting phone calls from pastors who were confessing their sins. And they, they here's the thing. They don't say where they got their sermon. This is the pattern, because they're embarrassed by what they're doing. Yeah. So when this one pastor wasn't embarrassed, he just was giving an excuse. You know, I, I didn't know this was wrong. I thought this is what everybody, he knew he, that wasn't true because I know where he went to seminary. I know who his, his preaching teachers were. So I would want to look at a pattern. To me, um, what I saw in, uh, and, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't listen to it all. Uh, but what I saw was that, that line that you quote, you can quote like it's like it's something you wrote yourself. Well, yeah, become become the kind of person the person you're looking for is looking for. Yes, that's a pretty clever line. I yeah. can't say it. I can't. It doesn't quite roll <laughs> off my tongue. But that is very clear that that was taken from Andy Stanley. Okay, mm -hmm. and if the person does not cite where he or she got that line, that's inappropriate because that's a thematic line to a sermon mm -hmm. that is clever beyond clever. It's like Tom Wright's line. Um, uh, we don't believe in life after death. We believe in life after life after death. Okay. Mm, that's yes. a very clever line. If you use that, Everybody knows you got that from Tom Wright. Right. If you pretend in a sermon like you, that you, I mean, in other words, if you give it in a sermon that people think you came up with it and they say, that's very clever. Well, you're getting glory and credit and honor for something that is not yours. And that right there is inappropriate. Now, uh, this person that you're talking about had a Twitter thread in which <laughs> Uh, at some point, he asked the question, um, 
what would you do with something you want to quote from a person, but you don't want people to go read that person or go listen to them? Well, that's an indication that you know what you're doing and you're hiding from your congregation. To me, Sheila, that is paternalistic and patronizing, and it doesn't trust your congregation to be able to make its own judgments. I find that reprehensible. Yeah, because that's what he did. So 11 days before the sermon, he tweeted that tweet out where he said, um, here, let me let me read the exact tweet. How do you clarify in a sermon that a statement or idea didn't come from you when you got it from someone you don't want to attribute by name because it would come off as an endorsement and you don't want to point your people in their direction? And at this point, Andy Stanley had been in the news a couple of weeks earlier for saying something controversial. I don't even know what it was. It doesn't even matter what it was, but, but that was also in the news. And then he followed that up with um, like, would you use a generalized caveat? This didn't come from me, but I've heard it said, or I heard another Bible teacher explain it this way. And he had a number of people answering and they all says, they all suggested something like I read the other day, or someone said when I was reading the other day, or I heard a guy say this once and it was all pastors responding this way. I couldn't believe it. I, I tweeted it out and I said, that is plagiarism. You name them no matter what, otherwise it's plagiarism. And people weren't, agreeing with me. But what I find so interesting is what he settled on was, yes, you just simply say that you heard it said, but he never even did that. Yeah, yeah. He never even did that. He just claimed it as his own. Well, sermons are not journal articles. They're not academic performances, publications, mm-hmm. where you're expected to play the game of attributing your sources. but there are, everybody knows that when the central idea or the main points of your sermon or an illustration that you know that in this point, this is where I give credit to someone. Here's what's happened. People like this have audiences that have not been taught how pastors get their sermons and create them. Mm-hmm. And they they assume that their pastor is just under Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the <laughs> Trinitarian uh, upper echelons. And they don't want to hurt their reputation. They don't want to hurt these people. So they live a lie. They live a myth that they are that clever to come up with their own clever expressions every week. The burden on a pastor is big and deep and heavy to -hmm. come up with sermons all the time and to come up with good sermons all the time that compete with these mega church pastors who really are, they have what, you know, you can call it the gift of gab, but they have uh, extreme levels of clarity and creativeness. And they're surrounded by people who can help them come up with even more creative and they're competing with that. All they have to do is say, I'm not as good as Andy Stanley. I'm not as good as Rick Warren. I'm not as good as Adam Hamilton. I'm not as good as whoever. And I'm not as funny as Amy Jill Levine. So this expression comes from her or this expression comes from them. Um, you don't have to attribute everything. But if you mentioned in a sermon that uh, I learned a lot, that I'm using in this sermon from Amy Jill Levine, or I learned a lot in this sermon from, let's say, uh, Daryl Bach, 
or you know somebody else people accept that yeah that would be fine if he had just started the whole thing with i read andy stanley's the new rules of love sex and dating really got a lot out of one of his chapters and all and and let me share some of that with you i'd be fine with that that's right that would be honest the other side is it's dishonest and it's stealing you know i hear these people say this well the bible writers didn't attribute sources no they didn't they didn't live in our world either they also ate ate terrible food and uh didn't wash and other things and they they didn't eat pork either so you know you're not you can't get by with that and then um they say that uh, everything is dependent upon someone well yes but that's not how it works is Mm -hmm. that you're using something particular from someone and you're making hay with it and i often say this you got paid for that sermon Mm -hmm. And if you're stealing someone's sermon, I mean the whole sermon, then you should give the money to them. Um, but if you are using the central theme of someone, cite it. If you're using their main points, cite it. Um, if it's two words together that are a little bit clever, but not all that clever, you don't have to cite that. No, you know, but if... But- but- but in that, in in the in the, um, I think it was only eight minutes of the sermon that I analyzed. He had four pithy sayings, and three of them I found sources for. Or no, yeah. he had five pithy sayings, and four of them I found sources for, other than him. And the other one, if I looked around, I probably could have. Like you know, he, he quoted um, Stephen Furtick, Mark Driscoll, Rick Warren, and then Andy Stanley. None of but them were ne- his. Did he quote Andy Stanley? Well, no, but I mean, he he said their words, yeah. but he never cited it. He never, he never cited it. Yeah, that's a bad pattern. I saw someone the other day, uh, something, uh, someone passed this on to me, that they clearly were using someone's sermon or someone's book or a chapter. And they had quoted, they had pulled from the, the sermon a quotation from Plato and from Martin Luther. But that's all they quoted. That's all they cited. The, the the big thing that they got mm-hmm. from someone else, they didn't cite. Right. And I I just think that's, it's dishonest. But now, now do, it, do seminaries teach that you need to cite in sermons? Because I was really surprised at how many people were responding to him, like pastors were responding to him saying it was perfectly fine not to cite. Okay. There are probably people doing the same thing. All right. I would say this. I have never talked to a homiletics professor who did not say uh, what I just said to you. If you take the whole sermon, you tell people. If you take the main points from someone, you tell people. If you take the main theme from someone, you tell people. Mm -hmm. So they teach not to plagiarize sermons. I've never talked to a homiletics professor who didn't say that. But here's the thing. Homiletics professors love to preach. Mm-hmm. And they love to preach their own sermons because they think they're good at it. Yeah. Right? And that's what preaching should be about, is that desire to preach and the love to, con- to, to preach to your congregation, words for your congregation. It's not about, uh, and, and, and people expect that what you say to them is your words, not someone else's. And yeah. so when it's, not, and they're not bothered. When you say to them, I got this point from Tim Keller. Yeah, I know. They, you know, I, I, asked, I asked on Instagram, I had a poll going on Instagram where I said, if a preacher is preaching a sermon and he got most of it from a book, should he cite the book? 
Okay. 97% of people said, yes, you should cite the book. And yet last year, Josh Howerton wrote a really long Twitter thread. And I want to read it to you and get your reaction where he was arguing that you don't need to, you don't need to. And here's, here's the thread. I'll just read it and then you can respond. Because pastors have a heart to help, almost every pastor tells other pastors to use anything from his sermons that will help them. If my bullet fits in your gun, shoot it. I've heard Adrian Rogers, J.D. Greer, Craig Groeschel, Chris Hodges, Bob Russell, Rick Warren, etc. all say this. I give away my notes almost every week, mostly to church planters who are leading churches by themselves without any staff help and don't have 20 hours a week for sermon prep. I'm happy to do this because a church sermon is not an academia dissertation or a book journalism publication. We're not preaching to make ourselves look good, sound smart, or sell something proprietary. We're preaching for life change and to grow the kingdom. Pastors are teachers. In school, 0% of people assume everything their teacher says is their teacher's 100% original thought, and they didn't get it from anywhere else. In fact, teachers are given lesson plans and are told to use them as starting points of presentations. Nobody hears a teacher finish teaching a lesson and say, step down immediately because you didn't cite the lesson plan you got that from. Nobody hears a grammar teacher say, I before E except after C and says, fire him. He didn't attribute. No one sees a physics teacher do an experiment and calls for his dismissal because he didn't mention where he first saw the object lesson. Why? When teachers teach, people assume they're pulling from whatever research information sources that can best help students, which is the goal. Because there's nothing new under the sun, and we've all been preaching the same Bible for 2,000 years, it is a given that pastors draw from one another, illustrations, points, sayings, structure, etc., whatever best helps the people they're teaching. But pastors are supposed to be getting their own word from God for their church. Well, yes, they are. That happens through the research process, not apart from it. Just like in commentaries, books, lectures, and articles, sometimes I'll hear something in a sermon and think, yeah, that's a word for our church right now. Think the Spirit wants me to deliver it, and I'll use an illustration or a way of explaining a passage. That is a word in season that happened through research, not individual inspiration. Not going to go here, but if you really want to get salty, you know who didn't always cite sources? Bible writers. Gospel writers and others borrow liberally from the Old Testament, sometimes citing, often just saying without citing, because in preaching, what really matters is that people are helped with the truth. All that to say, in the words of Pastor James Merritt, if someone borrows liberally from one of my sermons and somebody gets saved because of it, I have an investment in it gladly. And then he posts an update. Hilarious. This thread has been up for five minutes and I already have four DMs from pastors saying, thank you. I don't want to get yelled at, but I totally agree. Yeah, I read, I read that. Um, uh, I think that's a to me, this is largely a rationalization for a practice that he has accepted for himself. Mm -hmm. And I think he's covering a lot of ground with words that uh, need some nuance. Um, yes, we do research, but when the central idea, I research too, but when I recognize that the central idea that I got right here, this point that came from Josephus, uh, that I was led to by Steve Mason, I quote Steve Mason and I cite Steve Mason. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now there are times, of course, when let's say you don't re you don't realize that you know, I mean, no, nobody today in in my world requires that if you found in Dale Allison's commentary on James five re references to First Clement, and that now you're going to use them when you're explaining the passage. They don't expect you to say, "Well, he," you know, because mm -hmm. these references 
to ancient texts just get circulated in commentaries like crazy. Who knows who came yeah. up with these the first time? But there are, when your central point, when the central expressions that are unique to an author are, are reused, I think you have an obligation to, to tell your congregation that. Now, I think Josh Howerton has a bad practice here from what I can see. Uh, I think it's a bad habit. I don't think he's taught this in seminaries, but I think all he has to do is turn the corner by, by teaching his congregation how he does research and how he learns about the text. And that if he gets a central idea from someone, he's going to let them know if he's going to get his main points, you know, let's say he's got four points in his sermon and all four of them come from Rick Warren, then you tell people that, all right? I don't care if Rick Warren does say you can use my sermons. That's not what is taught in seminaries. And I understand that pastors learn from other people all the time. That's what they do. But when you're quoting someone, when, when it, when you're giving your, when your congregation is under the impression that this comes from you and it doesn't, you let them know that. I, at one time, was reading some really clever books, and I would write out, well, I'd say two or three words, not a whole sentence, but just a little expression, and I would write them on, on a piece of paper, and I would try to practice using them, and I would try to um, imitate them with different ways, you know, like adapting it. And it was just things that I was learning. And I use some of those now, and I have no idea where I got them. But it's very rare. And um, I, in my sermons, I write out my sermons. I have footnotes to myself or notes to myself where I got this. And I usually use most of those in the sermon. I tell the congregation where I got that. If it's a good point that I don't want them to think that's all my idea. Uh, so, well, the funny thing is, I've actually given a talk to singles about how to how to choose a mate, and I have used that line: "Be yes. the kind of person, the kind of person you're looking for is looking for." And I have held up Andy Stanley's book, and I've said, "This is a yes. great book. Yes. It's not hard. It's just not, not hard." No, I agree with you. I agree with you. You know, I think it's about honesty, it's about integrity, and it's about realism for your congregation to take a realistic view of who you are when you're preaching and how you come to these sermons. That's, that educates our church. It's patronizing mm -hmm. to say, I can't quote this guy because I don't want my congregation to read this guy. Well, then don't quote him. I yeah. think the bigger question too is like, why would you not quote that? Why would, okay, it, it, yeah. let's put aside the question of Andy Stanley because he didn't want to point people to Andy Stanley, but why would you not quote Stephen Furtick? Why would you not say Stephen, as Stephen Furtick so amazingly said, yeah. it's not, it's, it's not two halves coming, becoming a whole, it's whatever that, that was. What is the reason not to quote him, except that you want to elevate yourself and your own, your, your own, you want to elevate yourself in the eyes of the congregation. Yeah. I can't think look, of another reason not to do it. What does it, what does it hurt to quote that person? Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's so truth. it's truth. So we need to ask ourselves that question. Why are pastors yeah. so loath to quote people? Because I think that says a lot about where evangelicalism yeah. is right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot of pressure on them to yeah. perform on Sundays. I, and I, that's a I whole other, that. that's all. I do think that our, that our services are far too sermon centric. And I do think that we're, that we're expecting too much out of them. But then, you know what, just attributed it isn't that hard. So 
So thank you, Scott. I highly thank recommend. You. I highly recommend your book with that you wrote with your daughter, um, A Church Called Tove. It's just wonderful. And I will put a link to the podcast that Scott and Laura were on talking about that earlier too. So go check out that book. And any other books you want to plug or anything you want to tell people about? Oh, that's okay. I got these little everyday Bible studies that I'm doing for Zondervan or, or uh, Harper Christian Resources. I have one on James and Galatians and just finished one on John that's coming out. Philippians and the Thessalonians. Uh, so, you know, uh, love for Book of Acts, love for people to start reading their Bible with with these little study guides. Awesome. I'll put a link to those too. Well, thank you, Scott, for your thank time. You. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye, Sheila. I think it's great to having a professor come in and say definitively, this is not what pastors are taught to do. Yeah, or at least not at his school. Yeah, like they're, but they're taught not to do this. This is not ethical. This isn't. And it's not right. even necessary. I know. This is what I can't understand. The thing is, like, it doesn't matter. You know, I was talking to Katie, who edits this podcast, your sister, my daughter, my other daughter, my lovely. Yes, I, I hate calling her my other daughter. The other daughter. Yes. yes. <laughs> I love you, Katie. Yes. Um, and we were talking about this subject as we were preparing for this podcast. And she was telling me her pastor um, just completed a sermon series on a book that he read. And he started by saying, look, you know, I want to introduce you to people who are way smarter than I am. And I read this book, I got so much out of it. I was so excited about it. And I really want to share it with you. And he was so upfront about it. And everyone loved the series. And they were like, thank you for introducing me to that book. And it was just great. Well, and also, frankly, that gives you a lot more respect for the pastor. I know. Because he's just, I mean, being well read is a good thing. I know. Like, if this is a guy who takes his job really seriously and is doing research and is, you know, doing the work to make sure that he's up to date on, you know, the latest stuff and he's looking for interesting things to help his congregation wrestle with difficult topics, like, that cannot backfire. No, I think it's great. I was, I remember once uh, we were at family camp when you guys were much younger and they would take the kids off to play and the adults would have devotions in the morning and the speaker that week, so he was giving five different talks. The speaker actually was walking us through Henry Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. Mm, Yeah. One of my favorite books. And it was just an incredible week. We all knew he was walking through the book. He had extra copies of the book for us to buy if we wanted, but he just said, this made such a profound impact on me and I want to share it with you. Yeah. And nobody minded. Nobody said, well, you didn't think of that yourself you should have written your own book for this book study no No. we nobody minds no and this is what i can't quite understand is because you know he wrote that whole thread on why it's okay to plagiarize but he never explained why you would want to that's the thing because they can't explain why they want to because it doesn't look very good for them and even more than that um in that tweet that he had right before this sermon Mm-hmm. where he said, um, how do I quote someone without quoting them if I don't want to send people there? You know, the conclusion was that he was going to just say, well, I read it somewhere once. But he didn't even do that. But also, I'm going to be honest. Like, if you're quoting someone who you don't want to send people to, maybe don't quote them. Like, maybe, like, if there's if there's a point, like, there's some level where, like, for example, um, there's often psychologists who have really great stuff on one Thing. But then mm-hmm. they're super weird on something else because they're they're coming at it from a very uh, 20 stories above the ground, looking down, not thinking about how it affects the individual. Right. But it, mm-hmm. it, it, there's a lot of stuff we deal with that, and especially in like parenting stuff, where it's like, hey, they have some really cool stuff on this, but their take on this is a little is a little not great for the average parent, right? Yeah. That's one thing. But when you're talking about a spiritual development and you're quoting other pastors and theologians and stuff, if why would you 
be taking your theological teaching from someone who is spiritually abusive, who isn't healthy, who yeah. isn't. And if and if you're finding that someone is very spiritually like beneficial and really seems to understand the gospel, but you just don't do, don't agree with them theologically on one thing, then I mean either question why you don't agree with them on that thing <laughs> yeah. or just say, yeah, we disagree on infant baptism. Like, right. <laughs> like, either it's not an issue or it is. And yeah. if it is an issue, then why are you taking spiritual advice from them? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And it, like, it, and in fact, if you're worried about pointing them to someone that you think could be harmful in a broader sense, then taking that opportunity to, to tell your congregation, hey, you know, I really like what they say about A, we do need to be careful of what they say about B, that actually helps your congregation. It actually teaches discernment. Like, hey, this guy's got some great stuff on forgiveness. I actually really don't like what he says about marriage. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't advise going out and reading his stuff. Yeah. But this quote from him is fantastic. And I think yeah. perfectly exam- exemplifies this point. Like, that's perfectly fine. You're actually then modeling to your congregation how to have discernment and yeah. how to stand up against false teachings. Yeah. So there's absolutely no problem with with quoting people in that sense. Like, I don't have a clue what he has against Andy Stanley. I understand but, what he has against Mark Driscoll. Yeah, but I don't know what he has about against Rick Warren or Stephen Furtick either. Yeah. Like, I don't know why he wouldn't quote these people unless, unless there's something else going on. That's what I actually wonder if it's happening. Because let's just think about church for a minute Mm -hmm. okay now i agree that asking pastors to come up with a unique 40 minute sermon every Every week week. is a lot and that's why i really both of us are in churches now that don't do that that have a different model of service yeah that and i really I'm finding that so much better because I never really liked sitting through 40-minute sermons anyway. <laughs> well, and I mean, you're a public speaker. Both of us done public speaking work. We know yeah. how hard it is to come up with a talk. Yeah, and so I do yeah. really, really feel for pastors here. Yeah. But, you know, a pastor like the one at Katie's church, okay? Mm-hmm. Yes, he has to come up with a sermon, but he is so focused. And I really like this pastor, so just a shout out for this pastor. He is so focused on building community. Yeah. That is his big thing. It's, you know, it's a, it's, it's a medium-sized church in a small town, and it's really growing with young families, and he's just trying to focus on building community for yeah. people who really need it. Um, and Meeting that the is, needs of real people yeah. in the pews. Yeah. And he's he has to do everything, right? Yeah. Like, it's a small church. They don't have another pastor on staff. Yeah, they don't have the budget for, like, a communications pastor and a... Outreach uh, pastor, pastor. And, and a administrative pastor. Counseling pastor. Yeah. And a... Yeah, like, no, he does everything, yeah. okay? Um, and that's not to say there aren't amazing volunteers. Volunteers or... I mean, yeah, I'm sure they have a secretary. Quite frankly, but- <laughs> everyone knows what we're talking about, yes, right? Yes, like- But then there are churches where there's multiple pastoral staff. Yeah. And it tends to be in those churches that the, that the head pastor who does the teaching doesn't have a lot of other responsibilities. Yeah. They vision cast for the church. Yes. Right? They're the head. They're the head of the church, the lead of the church. They're going to all the planning meetings and the vision meetings, etc. But their main role is teaching. Yeah. And their main role is coming up with a sermon. And people flock to their church because they give such great sermons. Mm -hmm. They're often really charismatic. They can deliver a sermon really well. Um, And so this is why people flock. If your main role is to teach and you're plagiarizing everybody else, I think that's a problem. Oh, it's completely a problem. It's completely a problem, especially because what you're doing is you're advertising a false product. Mm-hmm. Right? So what we hear all the time, especially from small pastors who reach out to us who are saying, I'm trying to do the good work, but 
in essence, the oxygen is being sucked out by these mega churches. Yeah. Right? So you're a church of like maybe 250 people. Mm-hmm. You don't have the budget for like a huge youth group, a huge children's program. You don't mm-hmm. have the volunteer base. But down the road, there's a mega church of 7,000 people who does have all of that. And they've got this great preaching. Mm-hmm. And what happens if all the great preaching is actually being stolen from other people? Yeah. So now you have this small pastor, this small church pastor who's just trying to do what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And there's a larger corporation that's using unethical business practices to choke them out. Yeah. And we're seeing this in other areas of business too, because let's be honest, mega churches are corporations. They are not churches in the same way. Mm-hmm. Okay. You have, for instance, like take a, a small, say you're, you're someone who really is into ethical fashion. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you want to make ethical, you know, locally created clothes, right? Okay. To make sure you're not exploiting anyone. You're giving a living wage, all this different stuff. But then you have like big box stores or these huge retailers that will exploit workers in other countries, even children and child labor to be able to offer clothing that's completely unethically made at like a fraction of the price. So the people who, you know, are, are shopping, they, I mean, it's not even really a, a choice. It's just so much cheaper. Yeah. And, and so, we know and we know people need cheap stuff. Oh, and, yeah. And we're not we're not trying to say that you shouldn't be able to get cheap stuff. It's just when the cheap stuff comes. It sucks all the oxygen. This is the problem is then there's no way for the ethical people to do their job. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what really bothers me in the church is we should not be stealing sermons if literally what you're advertising yourself as is being a good preacher. Yeah. And again, because and here's here's what it comes down to. If you were to listen to that nine minutes, eight minutes, whatever it was of Josh Howerton's sermon and probably the rest of it, every pithy set thing that he said was from somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all like the filler stuff was him. But basically every pithy... Th- now, I have a couple of pithy things that yes. I say. And those things came because I wrestled with them. Yeah. Um, like one of the one of the phrases we say a lot is Jesus didn't refuse to look at women. Yeah, he really saw women. Jesus chose to truly see women. And that's because we had worked so hard at trying to crystallize our message. We had wrestled with this. We had written the manuscript. We had thought about it. We had talked it through. We had gone on walks. And then we were finally able to crystallize it into yeah. something that really explains it. Um, your dad has one. The, uh, the the objectification of women and male sexuality are not one and the same thing. Yeah. You know, and that's something that, that he says a lot. And that's only because we've wrestled with them. So when you have pithy sayings, the, the thing that you're communicating to people is, I have wrestled with this. Mm-hmm. I have really thought about this. I have grappled with this for so long that I was able to crystallize this into well, something. Because that's not easy to do. No, as I always said, when I was in university, I found 20-page papers way easier than like five-page papers on mm-hmm. research topics. Because of the 20-page paper, you don't have to cut anything. Mm-hmm. Right? A five-page paper, you have to really understand what you're talking about because you have to know what's important enough to make the cut. Yeah. It actually is way harder. Right. So if a pastor is filling his sermon with these pithy things yeah. that he did not say, that someone else said, he is giving the congregation the impression that I am very, very smart yes. and insightful. And this is what freaks me out because to me, this this is just so similar to cult tactics. And I know that's a strong word, but mm-hmm. bear with me, okay? Mm-hmm. So one of the founding um, principles of a cult 
is that you have a charismatic leader who is the harbinger of truth, right? Mm -hmm. So you have someone who is the one we all look to. Like, you know, there's a prophet or it's someone who is a god or someone who is sent from God, who speaks for God, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And the whole cult kind of hinges on this idea that this person has wisdom that others lack. Right. There is no one who knows more. Everything Mm -hmm. is filtered through this charismatic leader. And so, you know, when I see pastors unwilling to Mm -hmm. give their citations to show where they learn things, it, it throws up red flags for me that this is someone who wants to be a charismatic leader. Now, I am not saying that they actively want to start a cult. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we already do know that when people are in power, Mm -hmm. the, the natural Um, drive that we have is to get more power and Mm -hmm. to not lose it. And this is frankly why a lot of spiritual abuse ends up taking place is because we don't recognize the red flags of when we switch from being a church to going towards more cult-like thinking. And Mm -hmm. this idea of a charismatic leader is one of them that I think we need to look for a lot more. When you have a leader who's not willing to give credit or who just is is lazy in doing that um, or who purposely chooses these things that'll make them look really smart even if it didn't come from them, that sounds to me like someone who wants to be seen as the harbinger of truth, who mm-hmm. wants to take credibility without earning it, yeah. who wants to be seen as authoritative, who wants people to look at him and say, wow, that's so smart. I never would have thought of that. You know, he knows so much. He's mm-hmm. so wise. Um, you know, someone who wants to have that air of, uh, of superiority, frankly. Mm-hmm. And that is a cult leader tactic. It's not a good pastor. No. And so what I really suggest for people like Josh Mm -hmm. is to make sure that being in these big megachurch situations, you're going to have to actively fight to stay humble. And that's actually a point that Caitlin Beatty um, makes in her book, Celebrities for Jesus. We we had Caitlin on uh, the podcast last week Mm -hmm. talking about this, and I will put a link to that podcast. But that if you are in a position where you have a lot of fame, and she says fame is not bad. No. Okay. You, You know, people have fame. You need to fight against having celebrity. Yeah, and that's exactly it. When we're in this crisis time in evangelicalism, where Mm -hmm. spiritual abuse is rampant because we have not put checks and balances Mm -hmm. in for those in the highest level of authority, such as people like Josh, who Mm -hmm. run these mega churches, this is what happens. Mm -hmm. Where you have someone who accidentally, because I I do genuinely believe that, that myself, this is my personal opinion, Mm -hmm. personal opinion is that I think that Josh genuinely is just trying to be a good pastor. Yeah, I think, I think he's he... trying to give his congregation what they want. He's trying to do the best by them. Mm-hmm. I think the problem is, though, he's not recognizing the dangers of fame, the dangers of power, and the dangers of the, the platform he has. And he's not humbling himself and making sure that he is acting in a way that is 100% clear on his conscience and that is completely honest and transparent. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, just once again, we're seeing another person who has power, who is using that to his advantage instead of choosing to humble himself as Christ did and being that example for his congregation instead you get the fame yeah and again i think what he's we argued in his twitter thread was that it doesn't matter when you're plagiarizing in a sermon is no you can't possibly plagiarize in a sermon because it's not about the income right (laughs) and he says and i just want to again read you this one tweet but that's lying they're passing off your information as if it's their own and to this i say lol and ha ha yeah which is just, I find this very problematic that oh, he would write such very. a long thread defending this practice when his whole job is to 
be teach. a spiritual teacher. Is yeah, your his whole job at church is not to do the counseling. It's not to run the youth group. It's yeah. not. It's just to give the message. And if the message that he's given is largely taken bits and pieces from all these other people, that is a problem. Doesn't mean you can't do it, but just tell others so that you're not showing a false sense of who you are. And that's what worries me is that he's projecting a false sense of who he is in order to elevate himself, himself and his reputation and make other people think that he is so smart. But here's what bothers me on a more just spiritual existential level. Okay. okay. Here's okay. what I see. And I'm going to read you a section that's not going to sound like it has anything to do with this at first. And I am <laughs> going right. to explain myself. Ready? Right. This right. is from first Samuel chapter two, mm-hmm. verse starting from verse 12. Okay. Eli's sons and Eli was priest. Yeah, he was the high priest. He was the high priest. Mm -hmm. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled, would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come up and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first, then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I will take it by force. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what was happening was they had this this idea the priests had to eat. Yeah, and they got and their food from from offerings. the sacrifices but there and was, offerings. But there was a very specific thing that they could eat. It was a ceremonial thing to make sure that the priests weren't simply taking the best stuff, mm-hmm. right? They would just sometimes they might get the drumstick, yeah. right? But sometimes they wouldn't, right? Like it was just kind of you just stick the fork in, you get what you get, yeah. and you're grateful. Um, unto mm-hmm. the Lord. That's what they that's what they were supposed to do. And then these guys are saying, well, we can game the system, mm-hmm. right? We can make sure that we get the best. We get the first fruits. Mm-hmm. We get whatever we want because no one can stop us. In right. essence, they use their power as spiritual leaders and their status within the priesthood mm-hmm. to be able to boss around everyone else and take what they wanted. And so people would come to make their sacrifices to God and they would and, and they, they would, would take the best for themselves. Right. And that mm-hmm. is treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Here's my problem. Okay. Okay, and and I want to first of all say this and say what I'm not saying. Mm-hmm. Okay. When you look at the average income of pastors in the US, the mm-hmm. average income is is a pretty decent income. Okay? Mm-hmm. It genuinely is. But that's the average. Mm-hmm. That is not the mode. Okay, that doesn't mean that the most pastors are paid a pretty decent living av- living wage average. Mm-hmm. A lot of pastors are barely scraping by. Yeah. And then there's a lot of pastors at mega churches that are making more than enough. Yeah. There's a lot of pastors who are living on practically minimum wage, okay? Yeah. And then there's a lot of pastors who have $5,000 watches. Yes. And when you are a pastor like Josh Howerton, we don't know what kind of watch he wears or No, anything. we don't. <laughs> We're not what making I'm saying commentary is, on that. When you are at a church, who is getting so much money from people. Mm-hmm. So much money. I have I have looked at pictures of the campuses, of mm-hmm. the churches, the Lake Point churches. So much money. Mm-hmm. And you use your salary that you are given from people who are giving money to God. Mm-hmm. Your salary mm-hmm. is coming from people giving money to God. Yeah. And your salary is to do one thing mm-hmm. and you lie about it. Yeah. Whatever you want to call it, 
whatever you want to use to rationalize away the fact that you won't cite your sources because it makes you look smarter. Because mm-hmm. it makes you look like you have all these pithy statements. When you are using God's money to fund your dishonesty, that is being the sons of Eli. You are taking God's offering and treating it with contempt. When you are doing a job paid for, again, by money given to God, and you do so with less integrity than what is expected of Mm 18-year-olds in secular universities where Mm -hmm. they don't argue with it. They're like, heck yeah, I wouldn't want to steal. I wouldn't want to plagiarize. Of course I need to cite my references. Mm -hmm. When the thing that would simply fix all of this is something that would just humble you a tiny bit in front of your congregation. Just make you seem a little bit less like you have all the answers. Yeah. Just make it seem like maybe you do actually really also learn from people and maybe you aren't the smartest person around. Mm -hmm. When that's the only thing getting in the way of you and honesty and you choose not to do it. Yeah. I don't see how you are any different than Eli's sons. There are pastors out there who feel the burden Mm -hmm. of working under because of God's money. There are pastors out there who feel that responsibility greatly. Mm-hmm. There are pastors who are living lives where they are dedicated to caring, feeding, nurturing the sheep, where they are doing everything so their conscience can be clear. And yeah, they make mistakes. And yeah, they screw up sometimes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they don't get it all right. And yeah, we all have theological blind spots and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But there are people who feel the weight of it. And then there's this. And then there's this, where they have millions of dollars going into their churches. Mm-hmm. They have their throne. It literally looks like a throne, by the way. When mm-hmm. you watch the videos, he mm-hmm. literally is like on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. Like they have their throne. They have their kingdom. They have their power. Yeah. And they, they say, I will take it if you don't give it to me. Mm-hmm. Because that's what they do. That's what they do. Yeah. And, and then they laugh about it. Yeah. To that I say, LOL and haha. That's the level that they take it seriously. So, you know, I I didn't listen. I didn't look through the rest of Josh Howerton's sermon. You know, if you go to his church, I would just I would just challenge you to take the pithy sayings that he said last week and just put them through Google. I'm see, have, everyone has their phones in the middle of the sermon. Yeah, just Google, just Google it. And and maybe you're not at Josh Howerton's church, but you're at someone else's church, and you're just curious. Just take the pithy sayings that your pastor is saying and put them through Google. And find out, yeah, you know what, this is this is actually being plagiarized because we need to expect more. Yeah. If the if the church is redefining integrity so that it doesn't actually mean integrity, if we're redefining lying so if, that <laughs> if lying means one thing for you and one thing for me, then and if integrity means one thing for you and one thing for we've me We've lost the plot. We've lost the plot, you know? And, and we need to get back to it because this is one of the reasons that the evangelical church is, is really sick right now, is that we have a problem with power. We have a problem with celebrity. And we need to start taking this seriously. We need to stop treating the offerings of God with contempt. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. So a little bit of a different podcast, <laughs> not our usual stuff, yeah. but I think this is a big problem in the church. And I just encourage everybody to take a look at it in your own church. And I hope that your pastor does things the way Katie's pastor does. Because that is the way to honor God. And that is the way to build up a church where it's based on community and being part of the community rather than being above. 
And that's really important. We don't need charismatic leaders. We don't need charismatic leaders. No. We don't need harbingers of truth. No. We We have Jesus. We We just need people. We need people to love. Community. And community. Okay. So that was it. I will put the links to all of this again in the podcast notes so you can see everything for yourself and judge for yourself. And I will also put the links to other threads of people who are plagiarizing. You know, I'm not, I'm very unlikely to do anything else about this. Oh, so yeah. if you find that your pastor has plagiarized, please don't send it to us, <laughs> frankly. Uh, <laughs> Unless it's someone really, really huge that we call out, you know, but do something about it. Put it on social media. You know, do, I can't, I can't do anything else. If it's but, your pastor, you have the connections. Yeah, Talk to him. But do something with it. Raise it with your church and just ask, is this really, is this really the level of integrity that we want? So thank you for joining us on the Bare Marriage Podcast. Next week, we will start our marriage misdiagnosis series where we will take a look at is the way that we talk about marriage in the evangelical church actually making it harder than it needs to be and are we diagnosing the wrong problem so I'm excited about that that's been happening on the blog so go check out the blog posts at baremarriage.com and join us next week as we dive into that thanks bye bye bye